You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. Good morning, everyone. Can I add my welcome to that uh, of Alan's earlier on? You're most welcome with us. Um, it's good to see a good number of faces. Uh, surrounding me despite the lovely summer weather outside. So thank you for your faithfulness. Uh, as I said, my name is John. Um, we've been coming as a family to this church for just over 11 years now. Uh, my wife, Lorena, and my son, Michael. Uh, he was an adorable little two-year-old when we first arrived. He's now an adorable little 13-year-old and thoroughly embarrassed by his father right now. <laughs> Anyway, as, uh, as I was starting to um, think about this morning and prepare as an occasional preacher with no series to slot into, uh, I went to uh, the trusty old Church of England lectionary to look at the scripture passages for today and uh, came across, uh, as reflecting on the four passages that are there, came across a really nice long Old Testament passage that grabbed my attention and I thought it would be good to talk about uh, this morning. And then, of course, as I started to prepare properly, uh, I suddenly realized that I had been looking at entirely the wrong year. And so, depending on whether you're an optimist or a pessimist, this message is either coming to you two years too late or one year too early. But for any cartography fans in the house today, I do have something of a treat for you. So uh, we'll be looking at uh, the first chapter of Exodus this morning, uh, starting from verse 8. The words should come up on the screen at some point in time. There we go. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. You guys know Joseph, right? That sort of snooty kid who went around telling his brothers that he was having dreams about him ruling over them, uh, the fool, and so they chuck him into a well They sell him to slave traders and tell his dad that a wild animal ate him, that Joseph. Uh, Turns out that wasn't the end of the road for him. God had some plans. After he turns his hand to slavery for a bit, he has a stint in jail. His God-given talent for remembering and interpreting dreams manages to get him out of prison, which might seem implausible until you consider how else you might land the job of prime minister, uh, perhaps in certain political contexts today. And so Joseph goes about setting up the first ever kind of social state through taxation. And he successfully feeds the entire nation of Egypt through uh, a a tremendous famine, uh, as well as being successfully used by God to kind of bring uh, stable starvation from the whole known world at the time. So you'd think Joseph is kind of a big deal in Egypt. When his extended family travel down and come to join him and the Israelites settle in Egypt and then for several hundred years thereafter his family greatly increases and multiplies and they become extremely strong. I think verse 7 of chapter 1 tells us. But then this new king who did not know Joseph came to power. So in chapter 1 of Exodus we have Pharaoh who does not know Joseph. And if we read ahead in the story by chapter 5 we have a Pharaoh who says I do not know the Lord. Now, Pharaohs are supposed to be the wisest, 
cleverest, most well-educated, highly trained men in the known world at the time, but it seems that maybe they don't know about some very important things. You see, because forgetting about the story of the people of God soon leads to forgetting about the God of the story. It's very easy for us to gloss through books like Genesis and Exodus and the Gospels of our Lord and maybe treat them like they're some sort of nice origin myths, uh, perhaps lovely stories that we can tell the kids to get them interested in the Bible. And then when they grow up, they'll do some proper theology and uh, some proper scripture like Romans or Ephesians or Hebrews and, uh, and we'll learn some good stuff then. Except the stories of God's dealings with his people throughout scripture and in the Gospels is the very thing that underpins those later writings. You take away the stories, you take away the foundation, and before long, you no longer know the Lord. It's easy to forget these stories are not for conveying scientific and historical facts. They're intended to convey the truths of how you, who Yahweh is and how he deals with his people. Understanding God's character and his workings is called theology. You cannot develop a deep and abiding understanding of God without these stories. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time going through the story this morning in the first and into the second chapter of Exodus, assuming we have time. So don't be like Pharaoh. Don't forget Joseph or Abraham, or Hannah, or Moses, or Elijah, or Esther, or Solomon, or any of those other Bible characters. Moving on to verse 9. And he, this is Pharaoh, (laughs) said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Now, many archaeologists and historians believe that for a period of time during the biblical times, uh, Egypt was ruled by a foreign Semitic peoples from the east, uh, sometimes known as the Hyksos rulers, which could roughly translate as shepherd kings. And this might have been what created kind of a friendlier disposition towards the likes of Joseph and before him Abraham coming down to settle in Egypt. But at some point, these Hyksos rulers disappear from the scene to be replaced again by native Egyptians. So you can imagine why a new king may have been concerned about the allegiances of the Israelites, because they too were a Semitic peoples. And so Pharaoh reads the world around him like he's been taught through all of the best education available in the world, all of his political experience or his diplomatic experience, all of his training, all of his teaching, all of his studies, And he resolves to deal shrewdly, some translations say wisely, with the Israelite problem. So we move on to verse 11 in the story. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. Now please don't get all excited about seeing a name that looks like Ramses. In the text, this isn't Disney's Prince of Egypt. Uh, Ramses here is clearly a store city, not a person. I've seen at least six different pharaohs proposed 
as this pharaoh in the reading that I've done. I'm sure there are probably more. If anything, I think it's significant that the narrative provides pharaoh with no name. And when we read this, it's easy to try and think, who is this pharaoh? When I was running through it with my wife last night, Lorena, the first thing she said is, which pharaoh is that? That's kind of the point. We don't need to know who this pharaoh is because pharaoh is not actually the main character in this story. And as we read this properly, we're going to find out who the main character is. Spoiler alert, it's God, not Pharaoh. It is so easy for us all to miss who the main character in our story is. I think most of the time we think it's ourselves. You are not the main player in the story. Neither is Pharaoh, or Rishi, or Liz, or your boss, or your teacher, or your parent. (coughs) They are not the main player in the story. God is. Before we move on, though, let's quickly consider these store cities that the Hebrews are building. Uh, Pithom and Ramses. Uh, If you remember your Bible story, you might remember that the Israelites settled in a place called Goshen. And uh, I have a map. Show you. There's Goshen, there's the Nile Delta, Goshen set off to the east of the Nile. Now, what, what on earth is Pharaoh doing over here? Now, if you, uh, every, the problem that every major army has had since time immemorial is supply lines. It's one thing to get your troops to where the action is, but it doesn't matter how good those troops are, it doesn't matter how well trained they are, it doesn't matter how good their equipment is, if you run out of food, you're doomed. You lose the battle. And then additionally, if, if there's going to be an invasion of some sort, you want to be able to get your troops quickly to where the action is. You don't want them laden down with all sorts of equipment and things. You want to be able to say, right, get up and go. And, and so Pharaoh has these Hebrews building these two defensive cities full of military equipment and food, store cities, just where he thinks an invading army is likely to enter his territory. He is being super clever. He is being wise. He is being shrewd. He is utilizing a workshop, a workforce. He's keeping them occupied instead of them being distracted by all sorts of other things that could undermine his authority. He's killing two birds with one stone by keeping them busy and building up his defenses at the same time. He is shrewd. He is wise. He is skillful. That's exactly what you'd expect from Pharaoh. And it's especially wise considering how these Israelites are expanding. It's already been mentioned three times in the story, once by Pharaoh himself. It's going to get mentioned twice more in this passage. You see, because God had promised his people that they would grow and they would multiply. And nothing can overcome God's work amongst his people. God had promised it to Abraham in Genesis 15 that they would become a great nation and they will, despite any and all opposition that Pharaoh may choose to throw at them. And by trying to curtail what is happening, Pharaoh is setting himself up to work against the Lord. And we'll see how that pans out for him in due course as we read the book of Exodus. It is Pharaoh who is disrupting God's story, not the people of God disrupting Pharaoh's story. Moving on to verse 12. 
But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. And so the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard work in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. You know, when you, when you trust in Pharaoh, when you trust in yourself, it is easy to look at the world around you and make shrewd, wise, skillful actions, observations, driven by your own kind of fears and insecurities. During the Second World War, the USA did a very, very similar thing to what Pharaoh was doing on their own home soil. People started to ask about whether the Japanese population living in the US West Coast would resist invasion or greet the occupiers as liberators. And so people panicked. Less than four months after the attack on Pearl Harbor, the internment of 120,000 people of Japanese descent in at least 10 concentration camps had started. I have a map. There they are, West Coast Exclusion Zone, these 10 different internment camps. U.S. citizens who were as little as 1 16th Japanese were treated in the same way that you might treat prisoners of war captured during battle. Imprisoned and set to work essentially for racist reasons rather than any real evidence of sedition or treason. That is exactly what Pharaoh is doing to the Israelites. Treating them like a captured enemy. Treating them, treating a segment of his own citizens, if you like, like slave labor because of his own fears and prejudices. But the Israelites keep increasing despite Pharaoh's efforts because God... The main player in the story is adding increase where there shouldn't be any naturally. Despite every effort of Pharaoh to oppress the Israelites, God continues to fulfill his promise to Abraham. And so in desperation, Pharaoh now decides to resort to some slightly more extreme measures. Verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew woman and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Oh. At my work, we have a regular training program. Once a quarter, we have to complete uh, a module, and this quarter's module was uh, on DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now, I'm going to make an educated guess that in Pharaoh Training School, there was no such module on their curriculum. I'm also going to guess that Pharaoh was not a committed feminist. In Pharaoh's mind, it's all about the men. The men are the threat. Women, not so much. It's fine, let the daughters live. How could girls possibly be a threat to his great manly power? But God has no such bias. God delights in taking the so-called weaker members and giving them more honor. You know, compared to the greatness of Yahweh, all of our skills and abilities, everything that we bring to the table, as impressive or unimpressive as they might be, are just rounding errors. 
and meaningless. Maybe you're blessed with great gifts and abilities compared to those you see around you. Don't get all proud and puffed up about that. You're really not all that impressive compared to God. Maybe you feel you don't have too much to offer because everyone else is so impressive compared to you. You're too young, too old, too single, too black, too poor, too stupid, too female, too working class, too sick, too whatever. Don't be such a fool. Get over yourself and get on God's program. In 2008, my aunt, uh, my mother's sister, passed away from multiple sclerosis. She'd suffered with that terrible disease for around 30 years. Um, Her diagnosis ended the plans that her and her husband had to go and be foreign missionaries. And some years later, the burden of caring for her became too much for him, and he divorced her, leaving her on her own. For most of her last 10 years, she was near unable to move. She wasn't even able to operate an electric wheelchair or even feed herself. During that time, she managed to hold a weekly prayer meeting from her care home. She seldom missed a week of church, and she wrote and had published not one, but two books of devotionals. None of us have any excuse. Your to whatever is irrelevant in the light of God's immeasurable power. God transcends the society we live in. Your to whatever make her tell your chance of success out there, perhaps even at times in the church. But when it comes to God, using your to whatever is a triviality to him. Perhaps you've noticed how Pharaoh doesn't have a name, but the midwives do. Shepra and Pua. It seems a little odd to me that there'd only be two Hebrew midwives, even if the local maternity unit was suffering from budget cuts. It also seems less likely to me that Pharaoh would order Hebrews to kill Hebrews. And so this has led some scholars to suggest that perhaps these may have been the sort of Egyptian overseers of the Hebrew midwife community. So we've seen how Pharaoh is acting out against God's purposes and plans, and he cannot see it. But whatever the nationality of the midwives, they would rather act in faith and work against Pharaoh than work against God. Verse 17, it says, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. And the midwife said to Pharaoh, Well, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Which I absolutely love. The Hebrew women are vigorous. The midwives serve up some made-up story about the beastly Hebrew woman, and Pharaoh is such a bigot, he just falls for it. Just accepts it at face value. This anonymous king, he thinks himself so wise, so shrewd, so clever, so skillful, and he's being made to look an absolute fool. The midwives, on the other hand, fear God, and they deal with Pharaoh wisely. 
They honour God ahead of him. They turn his own prejudices against him. And so verse 20, God dealt with the midwives, dealt well with the midwives, he didn't deal with them, he dealt well with them. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. There we have it again. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. I wonder what would have happened if Pharaoh had fallen in line with God's plan and program. Accepted the blessing that God had poured out on his people. Would God have treated Pharaoh the same way he treated the midwives? It's all speculation. But instead, Pharaoh continues to rely on his own wisdom instead of falling in line with with what God is doing. And he doubles down on his decision to exercise radical population control techniques and measures. Verse 22, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. The Nile was God's gift to Egypt. In their own law, in their own religion, they saw it as the source of all life and prosperity. That's what God intended when he made it as part of his creation, to be a source of life and prosperity. But by turning it into a source of death, Pharaoh is now not only striking out against God, he is almost subverting God's purposes in his creation. This has become extreme, although, to be fair to Pharaoh, he still hasn't clocked on that perhaps women are slightly more dangerous than he thought. Chapter 2, it says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months, and she couldn't hide him any longer. She took, him, uh, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. I mentioned Pharaoh subverting God's order of creation over here. There are echoes of the creation in this passage. This woman saw her child and she saw that he was good. If you remember back to uh, the first chapter of Genesis, when God looks at his creation and he declares it to be good. There's a sense of God's hand at work behind the scenes over here. It makes the hiding and the protection of this child more than just a mother's desperate actions. It makes it an act of faith and obedience to the Lord. And so like the midwives before, we now have another woman who fears the Lord more than Pharaoh. There comes a point, of course, when she realizes that what she's doing is not sustainable. But rather than despair and give up, she continues to act in faith. Pharaoh thinks he's acting wisely, but here we see an anonymous Hebrew woman acting with more wisdom than Pharaoh can muster in the circumstances I love how she, in a sense, completely complies with Pharaoh's instructions. Cast the sons into the Nile? Yeah, no problem, I'll put my son into the Nile, that's, that, that's fine. But at the same time, she's completely non-compliant. She makes this little basket with reeds and puts some waterproof materials around it. Exactly the same technique that Egyptians would use to make their boats. And so this, this isn't the sort of contraption you rustle up in an afternoon, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with this, this boy? But, you know, this is planning, this is preparation, that's born out of faith and faithfulness towards the Lord. So she places her baby in this little boat and sets it floating down the Nile. So we can see Pharaoh's decrees that are starting to come undone bit by bit by the very people he considers not to be a threat. First the midwives, 
now the baby's mother, another boy's sister gets in on the act too. Verse 4, it says, his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. It's not that surprising that the princess and her entourage would come across uh, the baby in the little boat. Uh, if you remember, uh, we had a map of where the uh, God's people lived. They live over there. Um, if we just move on to the next slide. Uh, royal people probably lived there. A city called Avaris, in the, uh, it's the northeastern branch of, of the Nile Delta, is where uh, his, uh, um, commentators believe that this princess would have lived. She would have come down to the river for ritual bathing as a regular occurrence. It was an important part of her kind of royal routine and religious duties that she would have been carrying out. It's possible that the mother even knew this and had prepared for this. Even so, then, the timing of God would have to be miraculous with the currents in the Nile and the reeds and the crocodiles and, and all those sorts of things. So anyway, um, the princess opens the basket. Verse uh, 6, she sees the child. Behold, the baby was crying, and she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's plans continue to unravel by the hands of women. First the midwives, then the mother, then the sister, and then in the cruelest twist, his very own daughter and her woman servant. Let the daughters live, they're not a problem. Just how shrewd are Pharaoh's actions turning out to be? Just how effective is all his wisdom and skill and training and learning being? Behind the scenes, God is using Pharaoh's own prejudices against him as he turns so-called weakness in Pharaoh's eyes into strength before our eyes as the reader. You know, today's powers would have us believe that the church is weak and irrelevant. You know, something that's tolerated. Maybe it's even useful for, the, you know, for those types of people that need it. That mindset completely overlooks the role that the church has to play in opposing Pharaoh. I'm not talking about civil disobedience and rule-breaking and law-breaking. But the church has a role to play in being that prophetic voice in society that not only speaks out but models ways of life that draw our culture and society back into alignment with the kingdom of God. Say that again. We are that prophetic voice in society that not only speaks out but models ways of life that draw our culture and society back into alignment with the kingdom of God. The church may seem weak and insignificant. Our voice may seem small, but as we resist Pharaoh as a weak body of believers and each of us in our own weak way, Evil is thwarted and God's plans are made perfect. Verse 9 in the story. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take the child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child 
and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So now we get to find out who this baby is. Um, I imagine some of you might have guessed that already, uh, having been familiar with these uh, stories. I wanted to point out there's more to this naming event than just telling us who this boy is. Often in the Old Testament, names and, and the process of naming has got deep significance uh, to, to the story. Now, there's a lot of debate that's been hap- that has been happening, has been happening for a very long time over this name and where it comes from and what it means and uh, is it Egyptian in origin, is it Hebrew in origin. I, I don't think it necessarily matters. What I can say is there's some very clever wordplay going on over here and it's probably something along these lines. From the princess's perspective, the Nile is the source of all life in Egypt and so to have a baby born from the Nile would be interpreted as a sign of supernatural provision. And so to her, the baby was the born one. Now from a Hebrew perspective, the Egyptian phrase for born one sounds very similar to the phrase they would use for drawing out in their language. And so from God's perspective, from a Hebrew perspective, in one sense, Moses was drawn out of the water into Egypt. But for those of you who know the story, Moses would later draw the Hebrews out of Egypt through the water. Whichever perspective you look at this from, the circumstances of this event summarize the divine providence of God working behind the scenes to raise up a redeemer for Israel under the circumstances. And in a show of God's great power, he even uses those perceived as weak and insignificant to carry out his purposes in raising up a leader of great destiny. Despite Pharaoh's best efforts to get in the way. What can we make of all of this? If Moses had never been thrown into the river, like Pharaoh commanded, he would never have ended up in Pharaoh's court and been trained in the skills required to lead a nation. For those who know the story, if you think ahead, it ever struck you as odd that his older brother Aaron submits to Moses so easily when the outsider comes back in? You see, if you were to pick a guy at random from the nation of Israel to lead that nation, you could not have done better than to pick the guy who was trained and educated and prepared since he was a toddler to lead a nation. There is God's gifting, there is God's call, there is God's voice. We long for those things, we should do. But there is also God's preparation. When Moses' mother presented his body to the Lord, almost as an act of worship on the altar of the Nile, it triggered a process of divinely led preparation for greatness. You know, the narrative of our society is that you train for, what, 22 years, maybe 25 years, and then you're done, and you go out and you do your profession. God prepared Moses for 80 years 
40 years in the Egyptian court, learning the craft of politics, diplomacy, leadership, leading a nation. 40 years in the, na- in the wilderness in Midian, learning the pastoral skills and humility of a shepherd. Preparation doesn't happen by taking yourself off to Bible college or you know, faithfully attending church every week. Those are great things to do and God can and will use those to help with your preparation and his purposes. Preparation comes as we present ourselves before the Lord on a regular basis, as we submit ourselves to him. Paul writes in the book of Romans, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We think that when we give ourselves over to the Lord, we're going to lose something. We think that we're going to stop being ourselves in some way when we completely submit to him. The reality is when we present our bodies to him, we gain what is needed to completely fulfill our call and the purpose that he has for us. And it's not a one-off thing. It's something we have to keep on doing because God intends to continue preparing us for use long after he has already started to use us. That preparation is an ongoing, lifelong aspect of our walk with Jesus. Right now, we're going to have an opportunity to present ourselves to God in an act of spiritual worship. We're going to come to the communion table together. That'll be the end of the meeting. Once we do that, why not let that physical act of drawing near to the communion table today become an actual presenting of our bodies to the Lord in an act of spiritual worship. Now, like the naming of Moses, there is a deep mystery to what happens at the communion table. Perhaps there's an element of us drawing God out as we participate in the elements But at the same time, there's a sense of God drawing us out too. So let's submit ourselves to him. Let's put our bodies before him on a continual basis. And in our weakness, let us fall in line with God's program and see Pharaoh overturned and God's kingdom brought to life in our midst. I'm going to pray and then we'll do communion together. Father God, we thank you for the ways in which you prepare us. We thank you, Father God, that no matter how we contribute, that when we fall in line with your plans and purposes, 
we get to participate in the great things that you are doing to bring salvation to this earth. And I pray that as we submit ourselves to you now at the communion table, you would take with us and you would do with us what you will. In Jesus' name, amen.